Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Hey, what's up everybody? Once again, this is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. We're both so excited to share today's topic with you guys. Absolutely. Today's episode is focusing on the music of David Wise one of the most legendary Western video game composers of all time, and Will and I are so fortunate to get the opportunity to actually sit down and interview David Wise to talk about his legendary career. We're just so excited. Absolutely. And another exciting thing is that um, just something topical is Dave Wise is actually one of the composers on the upcoming Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. So we're going to get to talk to Dave a little bit about uh, his experience working on that title, as well as all the classic Donkey Kong Country games, as well as some of his work even back on the NES. Yeah, so I mean, that's a scoop, folks. I mean, that is a game that is hotly anticipated. It's coming out in a couple months. It's coming out on February 21st here in North America. So I know that I am greatly looking forward to that. So we're really looking forward to getting to talk to Dave uh, about that game and about the music and as well as his entire career. I mean, Fans of this podcast will know that Will and I are such huge fans of the Donkey Kong Country series. Those are just some of our favorite games and soundtracks of all time. So this is going to be a joy for us. Yeah, one thing i just like to mention for those of you that are fans of the show, or maybe those that are just coming in now, uh, you should go back a few episodes, because we actually, very recently, back in the month of November, we had Nintendo Month, we ended that off with a Donkey Kong episode, and we featured a lot of music from Donkey Kong Country, um, DK2, and DK3, so I think if you're really into the music of David Wise, you should go back and listen to that episode, because we played some of the best stuff from those three titles. So we're going to get to the interview very shortly here folks but what we're just going to do before we do that is we're just going to play a couple tracks um, just to give some context yeah just some context here just a couple tracks of of mr wise uh we're going to play an nes track and a super nes track and then we're going to sit down and talk with dave himself and then we're going to close off today's episode by just playing a couple more tracks so this is going to be such a good time let's start things off with an nes track now that is where dave began his career as a video game music composer let's play a track from who framed Roger Rabbit, which came out for the NES, we're going to play a track called Country. This was composed by Dave Wise. Awesome. That is Country, and that is from the NES game Who Framed Roger Rabbit, one of the early soundtracks composed by David Wise. 
Yeah, this is a wonderful piece of music, and this entire game has such a wonderfully interesting um, genre of music for an NES game. It's so playful. There's so much jazz, uh, country, and blues elements to the music, which again are focusing on Western art forms, which are some things that we haven't really heard as much at this point in video game history, hearing those sort of musical influences. Yeah, it's pretty obvious just listening to the soundtrack that this is a Western composer, because you're really not getting the the influences together in, in quite an authentic way as much with some of the Eastern composers of this time. You know, they obviously a lot of video game composers are masters of fusion, of, you know, combining multiple genres together, and that's very common. But there is something um, that a person like Dave Wise, you know, coming from a different part of the world with, with a different background, can bring to video game music, and that's something that I always love about Dave's uh, NES music, is that it's so fresh and unique and it sounds very different from a lot of the uh, stuff that you hear from the Japanese composers. Absolutely. One thing that we just have to get out of the way with Dave's music is that when we talk about David Wise, we're really focusing also on sort of the rise and fall of the company where he got his start and was actually the sole music composer for many years, Rare. And Rare became very popular towards the end of the 16-bit era, and especially on the N64 Absolutely. with titles like Goldeneye and Perfect Dark and Banjo-Kazooie, but Dave was there from the start. He was the first in-house composer that Rare had and was actually the only composer for many, many years. Absolutely. Well, now we're going to jump ahead in the future. We're going to play one more track here in the beginning of this episode. We're going to go to Donkey Kong Country 2 for the Super Nintendo, obviously the second game in the series. Now, this is a soundtrack that Dave composed solely by himself, so we're going to play a really awesome track that kind of encapsulates all the great things about the Donkey Kong Country series musically. It's very atmospheric and ambient, has a great melody and really great use of textures, really interesting uses of the samples of the Super Nintendo. Sweet, let's take a listen. So please enjoy In a Snowbound Land from Donkey Kong Country 2, composed by Dave Wise.
man, this is such a great example of how unique the music of the Donkey Kong Country series is. This is In a Snowbound Land from Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy's Conquest, composed by Dave Wise. And man, it's so vibey, isn't it? You can really soak in the deep emotions of this piece. So impressive for a 16-bit console like the Super Nintendo. This is a great showcase, uh, kind of a defense. If anyone has the argument that video game music wasn't taken seriously back then, this is a great counter-argument to that, because this is very serious emotional music, and that's one of the things that I love so much about right. this series. Well, it's absolutely, um, if not always serious, it's always um, very purposeful with its intent. That's what I love about the music of Dave Wise, is it's always so uh, diverse, and it's always meeting the experience at what it really truly wants. Something that I love about this track is, like you mentioned, it is so ambient, but it also has such a wonderfully crafted melody, and something that makes all the Donkey Kong Country music really work is that rhythmic element underneath. Right. You know, we, we really like to talk about sort of the atmospheric nature of a lot of this music, and the sort of catchy, melodic nature of a lot of it, but really the constant thread between every great Donkey Kong Country piece of music really is that rhythmic drive, because the rhythm in the tempo really plays such a strong component into the gameplay itself and it has always really played such a functional role in the music of Donkey Kong. Very good point, Will. Well, we're very excited, folks, and I know you are as well. We're not going to make you wait any longer. It is now time to sit down and talk with the man behind the music, the legendary David Wise. Well, we are now joined by Mr. Dave Wise. Dave, thanks so much for doing this. You're welcome. I have my brother Will here as well. Hi, Will. Hi, Dave. Really great. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thank you. Good to talk to you too. Dave, you have such a long-running legacy as a composer. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to scoring video games and whether or not that has changed over the years? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure I have a formula, really. If somebody gives me a level to look at i'll take a look at it and get a few ideas and start putting a few ideas down and then send it back for them for some um further comment really and develop it like that and that's really been the same all the way through you know right right from the beginning working on nes games to working on on the wii u right it's always been been the same for me i believe well, we're personally such great fans of your stellar work for the Donkey Kong Country games. What does that series mean to you, and how does it feel finally coming back to the musical world of Donkey Kong? Um, it's great. It's it's good to be back. And, um, I think one of the things that I missed at Rare when we got taken over by Microsoft was the fact that we'd probably never do a big title like Donkey Kong Country again. Right. So it's been an absolute pleasure to be working on the series once again. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it. Well, I mean, I'm sure all the gamers out there just were all so eager to hear that soundtrack. Well, I can already tell you, Dave, there's a lot of people that are so excited to hear that you're coming back. So That's great. Thank you. I mean, for me as well, I'm very excited to be back and doing, working on Donkey Kong again. So you've worked at Rare from 1985 all the way to 2009, such a long amount of time. Uh, you were their first in-house composer. How did you get the job at Rare? Um, let me see. I was working in, at a music shop in a city called Leicester in the UK. It's very central. And uh, what happened? Yeah, two men walked in off the street and they wanted to have a, a, a Yamaha CX-5 computer demonstrated and I think it was a Korg Poly 800 synth at the time that I was using as the controller and I'd set it up and they were very interested 
So um, all of a sudden, one of them said, oh, uh, can, can we talk upstairs? And I thought, oh, great. We've uh, made yet another sale of this comp system. <laughs> and so uh, we went upstairs to the office and it was Tim Stamper. And he offered me a job there and then. So uh, that's how it all started. Wow. It's, it's, it really is those little moments that really change your whole life. It's crazy. It is, isn't it? Absolutely. You never know what life's going to throw at you or, you know. <laughs> so it was, yes, it, it was. Although you don't see it at the time, it was one of those life-changing moments. Definitely. That's really interesting. Well, getting back to your compositions, your music is frequently praised for being atmospheric and for heightening the integration between music and sound. However, you also seem to be able to have a balance between ambience and very powerful and often catchy melodic material. What is your writing process and how are you able to strike that balance? I don't think I, I really have... Um... A preconceived idea of what I'm going to do. I just get down and look at the visuals and and do what comes naturally, really. Right. I don't really analyze what I do. I just get on and, and do it. So. Um, so when you're coming up with a piece, is, is the melody usually the first thing that comes to you? Not necessarily. No. I think I start off with the more the tempo and the pace of of the gameplay at any particular point. Right. And then build from there. And then I think once I've got a foundation of that tempo and that rhythm, that's where the melodies start coming from. So it's probably rhythm first of all, to give the pace and the um, the rhythmic content and how it bounces along, you know, depending on the gameplay. And that's really where I'd start developing the melody. That's so cool, especially when you think of the music for Donkey Kong, how it's so rhythmic oriented and how that rhythm is such an element even in the gameplay. It is very much so. And again, um, that was developed a little more for the DKCTF that we've just done. So we've, we've taken that perhaps an extra step, probably quite subtly. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think you'll notice it really in, when you're playing the game, the way the, the rhythm integrates with the gameplay. Well, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Kenji Yamamoto and how you got involved in Tropical Freeze? To do that, we have to go back to my, my last days at Rare. Right. So when I was leaving Rare, and I think it was on the last day, I'd had um, an email from Michael Kelbo just asking me what I was doing. Uh, sadly, at that time, I was a few personal problems that I was resolving. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't realize the gravity of the email that Michael had sent me at the time. So I, I had a few things to work out. So I left Rare. I'd started working on a different project for Sony at the time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when I got my brain back together and realized that, uh, oh, Michael Kelby, I recognize that name. Of course, it was somebody who'd worked originally on the original DKC series. He'd come over with Nintendo and he, and he worked at the uh, worked with the integration and with Tim and Chris Stamper at the time. So we'd, we'd met at that stage. So um, really from pretty much a few weeks after leaving Rare, We'd, I'd been in touch with Michael Kelber at Retro Studios and we'd been in contact there. And that's how the, you know, we developed that relationship and then came to work on DKCTF. Now, what was it like working for Retro Studios? Were there any similarities between Retro and Rare? And what was it really just like working at Retro? There, there were many similarities in, in the way that they, they work as a team and they get excited about different ideas and bring it all together. It was very reminiscent and it was, it was good. It was a good feeling of, of almost being back at rare, so to speak. It was a very similar pipeline of work. 
so it was it was almost familiar but then it had moved on somewhat as well obviously uh the tools that we use are a lot more sophisticated than they were at rare right now did you actually have the opportunity to work with kenji yamamoto or how did that work because i know that he did the previous game um donkey kong country returns yeah kenji yamamoto yamamoto san he works with he has a sound group that works with him as well so i think there are many composers who had or you know musicians and arrangers who'd worked on the previous score i met um, Yamamoto's son over in Texas at one of the meetings and he'd come over for a few days and we were talked about the direction of the game and where we're going to go with it and then later on in the project Yamamoto's son and his sound group worked on some of the pieces in, in, in the game I think that, that I really like what they do, I like the way they can take elements of the stuff that I'd done and integrate it into their stuff and that, that was very clever the way they'd done that very inspiring. It must be so cool for you all these years later to hear that material that you came up with in something like 1994, to hear it again with these better sounding instruments. It just must be so fun for you. It was, yeah. I didn't realize the impact of that until the latter years of Rare, when there's a, a group of people online who OC Remix. I don't know if you've heard of them. and that they Oh, yes. And that they do quite a lot of stuff. And it was it's very heartening to hear your stuff retold for you know the modern times. And again with uh, Yamamoto-san and his sound group, the fact that they're taking all of those original melodies and adapted them for a new game, it was very good, very heartening. So uh, and good fun as well, good fun to listen to. Well, that's great. I mean, seeing we're just such big fans of the Donkey Kong Country series. What can players expect to hear from the musical palette of this new game? How is the music going to be similar and what new things are going to be brought to the table? Because I know everyone's so excited that you're back in the composing chair again. I think one of the good things about Yamamoto-san, and he reminded me of the, the, the way Nintendo approached their games and the way they like to take the legacy and the the emotional things that attach people to games and introduce it or reintegrate it into modern games so there's a bit of modern and there's a bit of the old and it's the way they're fused together really so there's there's some new tunes and there's some of the original tunes and there's some some that have been fused really between the two so there's there's all sorts across the board but the nostalgia is what Nintendo, they find that very important, and we've tried to incorporate this into DKCTF. That's just fantastic. I can't wait to hear that soundtrack. Yeah, from what we've heard so far from some of the trailers and some of the gameplay, it's just, it's just so exciting uh, to, you know, to hear you, know, you coming back to this world, but to hear it in a, in a modern context. We, we just can't wait. Yeah, because it, it's strange because there, there are some pieces of music that we've um, updated from the original SNES soundtrack and the amount of processing power and instruments that we had to throw at it to make it sound reminiscent of the original score, it, it was quite surprising what we had to do to do that. So that, that was quite interesting because I think these days we, we expect so much because we have all these virtual instruments that we have access to right? and every, everybody expects a certain amount of quality so to recreate the old sounds but bring it up to date as well and still have the the essence of that sound that was that was quite a challenge but a very enjoyable one too 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because something we talk about on our podcast is the idea of the uncanny valley where back in the Super Nintendo, it was so obvious that that wasn't real. So there is a kind of nostalgia to the sounds. But now that you have access to better sounding samples, I imagine it would be hard to find a balance of it does sound more real, but this is still colorful, imaginative music. So it still needs to have that whimsical quality. So I imagine that would be challenging. It is a challenge because sometimes it is almost too easy to make it sound too real and then you're losing the essence of of really the, the game and the way it should play and the way it should sound so yeah we did have to think quite a lot about how we use those instruments and perhaps not make it sound too live but there's quite a lot of right there's quite a lot of live elements in there that have been quantized to make it fit in and I think that really it's really going to fit in this day and age because I think one of the things people forget is when they think back to Donkey Kong Country, they may initially think, oh, very colorful, playful, slightly goofy. But what I think is so interesting about the music is a lot of the music in that in those games are very serious and electronic and atmospheric. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that balance um, with, with kind of modern instrumentation because I think sometimes people forget that the music to that series was always taken fairly seriously in a way. Yeah, it, it was. And I think looking back now, some of it was quite almost too serious. But... <laughs> It somehow worked with with the gameplay, but there was always an underlying rhythmic background to it for it to sit on. Right. So I, I think that the elements did seem to work quite well together. But I don't think really it's the type of game that needs to be too serious. Right. So um, so yes, that the, there are those themes there, but we've tried to keep it as as lighthearted and as bouncy as possible. And I think that um, goes hand in hand with the, the graphics because they are very dynamic and they're very fun. So so matching those two together is quite important. Absolutely. That's so incredibly interesting. Speaking of Donkey Kong, going back to the original series, what were some of your musical influences for sort of creating the sound of Donkey Kong Country? I, I listen to stuff, as I'm sure most composers do. I, I just listen to a bit of everything all the time, constantly. Right. The I think the direction was taken really by the the limited s- amount of memory that we had on the SNES. It only used 64k, and that the whole sound, you know, including it wasn't MIDI data, but certainly the note data is also included in that 64k. So we had probably a float of about 56k of sounds that we could use. It used ADPCM, so we roughly had you know 150k in in real real sample sizes. So it's a very limited sound palette, and it was a case of working with what we might be able to fit into the sound palette and, and using that to, and, and that dictated a lot of what we could use, which is why we went more for the electronic type of score, because we could make a good job of doing that. How much control did you have on the Super Nintendo to choose the samples? Because I know a lot of that was customizable. Did you pick certain samples or were you given a sample pack by Nintendo? Or how did that work? The SNES as it came with the development kit had a set of samples that um, Nintendo supplied for us. So I, I used some of those samples, but on the whole, most of it was custom samples that I'd created. Oh, wow. I'd got very into single cycle wave samples. So you're basically going down to the just the, the smallest unit of a sample, which would be one wave. It might only be 16 bits long. 
and I'd take that as the sound source and start combining those together to make different sounds. So we've gone right down to a very microscopic sample layer, really. Very um, introverted, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the sound and the quality of the music for those Donkey Kong Country games, and I mean, even the graphics and the whole production of those games are really some of the best on the SNES. They're so advanced for that console. Well, and, and I, I think what made that game so fresh when it came out, a big part of it was the music because it wasn't doing what every other game was doing. There's something so signature and unmistakable about so much of your music, I would say. In your opinion, if you had to consider what are some of the unique elements that make a Dave Wise video game tune, or at least elements that you think about when you're working on a piece? Some of the things that made the original game work in the way that it did was because we didn't have MIDI. Everything was written in subroutines. So we'd be... Interesting. We'd be pulling subroutines and adapting them to save space. And that was... I'm sure that was quite a big influence on, on the way the soundtrack was developed. So as for a David Wise soundtrack, I, I, again, it's really just look at the graphics and, and take it from there and use use the tools I have in front of me to try and give the best music to suit the level, really. Well, it's working for you. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure I'd know how to change it. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, for us but in particular, uh, the soundtrack to that second game, Donkey Kong Country 2, is really just one of our absolute favorite soundtracks the music is so good and to me i'm just so consistently impressed with how much music there is and even as far as like how every level you have where when you die um there's almost a different arrangement of that little jingle depending on whatever musical palette is for that level and i just thought that was so innovative and something that i feel like even most modern games don't go that far true i mean the the, the reason they're all different is because we'd found a way to stack the memory because we only had about 56k that we could use we found a way of dropping in about 6k between levels so we couldn't use the same tune because we didn't have might not necessarily have the same samples to, to hand with you know until we went to the next level huh. mm -hmm. and that was why so we had to change the tune because otherwise we wouldn't be using the right instrument so it was a good opportunity to uh, adapt it for the sample palette that we had for each level. That's so cool. That's great. Well, moving along, um, after your days on the Super Nintendo when you moved on to the N64, uh, Diddy Kong Racing for the N64 was very different from the Donkey Kong Country series in the tone and the music. Can you talk about your the approach of scoring a racing game and how that was different from something like the Donkey Kong Country series? Well, clearly we're a big fans of Super Mario Kart. <laughs> yes. And we were, being rare, we, we like to take the, the idea of established Nintendo games and try and rarify them. <laughs> so uh, probably make them more Western. Absolutely. So the, the idea with the score with Diddy Kong Racing was to be even more Nintendo than Nintendo were. So to really... <laughs> <laughs> to really grab the cliches that, that they so, right. you know, they brilliantly get hold of, but even do it more so. So just try and make it everything cliched and defined e even more than Nintendo did it. So that was really where we we're trying to go with it. 
It's so interesting that you say that because I feel like nowadays the modern Mario Kart games that come out, some of them <laughs> may go back to Diddy Kong Racing for because I feel like that elevated uh, cartoonish quality of the music was so much fun. And I think it's funny to think that you were trying to do them. And who knows if nowadays they might be trying to do you. It's almost like this crazy cycle. Yeah, I, I think it was... I mean, it'd be funny if that's what they were trying to do, but that's certainly what I was trying to do. But we were taking their league, really, but just trying to do it more and exaggerate the cliches so much more than they, they'd already done. And I think that brings a certain quality to the game. And and with a game like Mario Kart, you can do that because, you know, the graphics are so fun and you can almost caricature the sounds and the graphics to make them even more cartoony than they were. And And as well with that score... It was more of a world tour as well. So we'd be going and taking influences from around the world. So from Spain, from the Middle East, right, uh, from Hawaii, all, all of these different places. And we were just trying to hone in on those cliches. Absolutely. Well, one thing I kind of want to get back to, uh, you were the sole composer at Rare from 1985 to 1994, if I'm correct about that. Was there a lot of pressure? Because you were obviously working on a lot of games. And how did you sort of approach that really huge responsibility? Um, I was probably too young to realize it was such a big responsibility at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It was just good fun, you know. as I said, I've been working in a music shop before, and if I wasn't working right. there, what was I going to do? So somebody was paying me to write tunes. When, you know, You're Getting paid to write your own music is so cool. Absolutely. It was, um, you know, so it was just a case of getting on with it. I mean, there were times when it was quite pressured because we had to get a game out. But some of those NES scores, they were written in a week. We did the whole lot, lock, stock and barrel. Speaking of that NES stuff, I'm a huge fan of your early work on the NES with games such as like RC Pro-Am, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Snake Rattle and Roll, and like many more. But what was your experience like working on the NES and how did some of those hardware and voice limitations affect the nature of your composition? Yes, it, it definitely influenced the, um, the, the composition because there weren't that many voices. Right. So you have to think very carefully about how the melody worked with the bass because really that's all we had. Sometimes mm-hmm. we'd, we'd have melody, a middle line and bass, but that was it. So it was basically, there's a lot of suggestion in there to try and get the chords and that would influence the melody somewhat as well. Right. So if you want to, just to take an example, if you're going from a major into a major seven, then Obviously, the melody had to be reaching the seventh to to make it work. So it was a very good way of, I suppose, learning how to compose for for video games. There was was no other option, really. And it it made you focus very much on the melody. Right. So it's probably very, very good training for the, uh, the years ahead, really. Absolutely. You know, that's that's one of the things that we enjoy about listening to your NES music and then going on to the Super Nintendos. We still hear that heart of it, but it's really fun to hear you with, with more voices. One thing I wanted to talk about is during your extensive time at Rare, what were some of the other roles that you played other than just a composer, maybe something more of an overseeing or supervisor role? And can you talk about your experience working on games in other capacities? I think because I'd been there obviously on my own then when we started employing people like robin and grant then right yeah there there was that supervisory role just to get them started really but they were 
very, very capable. They'd only need a bit of a start and off they'd go and, you know, if that was it, you could leave them to their own devices at that point. <laughs> so it wasn't really too much of a supervisory role. It was just getting people started off in the right direction and off they'd go really, which was which is great because that meant I could concentrate on writing music, which is what I wanted to do. Um, right. w- without having to worry too much about what everybody else was doing. So that there was some, you know, it's just making sure they've got the right kit, the right tools, put it, point to them in the right direction and getting them going. And, um, you know, off, off we went. Well, I kind of want to bring it back to that original Donkey Kong Country for the SNES. Now, Rare was not the studio that people expected to reboot a Nintendo franchise, but what's so crazy is that game was so critically acclaimed and loved by everyone that it sort of went on to spawn sort of a new era for Rare as far as all their successes, even into the N64. What was that project like, working on the original Donkey Kong Country? Was there a lot of pressure from Nintendo, and what was sort of the involvement between Rare and Nintendo? Um, I think we have to, what we have to do is go back slightly earlier than that. We have to go back just before we were in, we'd always been involved with Nintendo, but the, the bigger involvement happened when Tim had invested heavily in these, um, the the computers that they were using, um, these American computers, they were very expensive. Mm-hmm. And we're at one of those kind of crossroads because the NES had died, really, because everybody was working on the Super NES, but we weren't bringing big titles out on the SNES at that point. So Tim and Chris invested in these machines that, by by anybody's standard today, would have, you know, it was make or break, really. They cost a fortune. Right. We had put these tech demos. One was a like a boxing thing using 3D pixels, and the other one was um, Donkey Kong. Wow. And I think it was really the boxing one. When that was on screen, it was like nothing else anybody had seen. And I think that that excited a lot of people when they saw it, and that that was very instrumental in getting the um, the go-ahead to work on the DKC franchise, or Donkey Kong franchise. And that that's really how that bit started. So it was it was those tech demos of demonstrating that that could work, and and it and it did. It looked amazing, even on the SNES. And I think that's what revitalised it. Also, you have to remember that we were in competition with the Genesis at the time, which right. was almost more advanced than the Super NES. So by investing in these tools and this software and just throwing tons of time. Because those those machines had to render all the graphics, and you'd leave them on overnight. And, <laughs> you know, they just to come back in the morning and, and have a few renders done. It, it was that much processing mm-hmm. time that was involved. So it was exciting because we all knew we were onto um, something that nobody else was doing, which is a great feeling. And of course, you can't mess that up. You 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 know you've got something good, and you want to bring it out to market to be you know to be very impressive. And we were we were all right. very much aware of that. Absolutely. And also, you know, whether you're involved in gameplay, whether you're involved in music or doing the graphics or the animation, everybody who works at Rare and again, everybody who works at Retro, they're all, they all want to get the very best out of the technology that we have at the, at the time. And that was, that was very noticeable. And that's what we're all trying to do. We were just trying to make it as good as possible and much better than what we saw everybody else doing at the time. 
That's so interesting. You know, I feel like your music really breathed such a life into those original three games and gave them such an infectious spirit that made people just have so much fun and want to keep playing. Right. When you first thought about, because I know you were talking earlier about your approach to scoring video games, when you first saw what the team at Rare was creating, how did that affect the way you wanted to approach scoring the music to the original Donkey Kong Country, and subsequently um, the style that those three games would take on? Because it was obviously quite different from what Nintendo was doing musically at the time. When I first saw the, the, the demo for... DKC, I saw the graphics on screen, I'd assumed that Nintendo um, or somebody like Koji Kondo, who is very renowned as a composer even then, I I just assumed for some reason that he would be doing the music for such an important title. I didn't imagine that we'd be doing the the music for that. Right. (laughs) So as an interim, they'd asked me to to write some demos for the, the jungle level, which was the the working level that we were working on so i wrote three pieces for that and uh, i presented them and they they said okay that's great can you just put them all together <laughs> we'll say you've got one which is why when you listen to the jungle theme why it switches to the dun, yeah dun, there's dun, different sections yeah, of it three dun, different dun. sections and and that's why so <laughs> i just put three together and off this demo went over to japan anyway somebody there must have liked it because it stuck <laughs> That's crazy. Dave, I know I know it was so long ago, but do you happen to remember when you first came up with the uh like arguably the most famous theme of Donkey Kong Country? Did it feel good when you came up with that? Did you realize how important that would be or was it just another idea you came it, up with? It was just another idea I'd, I'd come up with, really. So, I mean, we were listening to obviously, yeah. There are so many kind of cliché jungle styles. That, that were out there at the time and it was a case of trying to take influences from all of them and come up with an original theme or what well, it didn't need to be too original you know there has to be some familiarity in there it's got to sound like a jungle right so it was it was definitely composition by taking lots of elements from from different places and then putting your own spin on them i'd have a melody and you'd have something and you'd come in the next day and you think, well, that's not quite right. And I, I like I like to percolate with melodies. I don't just like to write it and that's it. I like to um, write it, sit on it for a couple of days and then come back to it and work on it and work on it and work on it until I've honed it down to something that, that, that I think breathes quite naturally. And that, that's the way I'd approach the melody. And that's very much the same with that, which is it, it took a long time to to get it to, to work for me, so um, uh, fortunately it did. But it, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, I was just doing what I thought was a demo for the tech demos to send over to Japan. It, um, I didn't realize it was going to be used on the game at that point. Right. Do you remember where in the, in the process of making the first game did you compose Aquatic Ambience, the swimming theme? Because that's arguably one of the most famous and well-loved themes of that first game. Was that something that was composed a little later on? Not really. I did the jungle level first, and it was December of the year before the game came out. And I was my favorite synth at the time was called the Core Wave Station, and that worked on the single cycle waves and just playing them in sequence. And I was trying very hard to recreate that on the SNES with a limited 64K memory. Right. So that's that's the technical side of it, and 
it was really trying to use that that technology and emulating the core wave station which is where the the, the aquatic ambience comes from and it just works on that baseline which is literally eight waveforms just in sequence going ding 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 and it they were just the first eight waveforms that I, that I got and that's how we got the baseline and everything really came after that so it was really experimenting with how far we could take that technology because it, it wasn't just me there were programmers working on that and they were adapting the sound chip for me and writing special tools you know it's it's always a team you know creative process it obviously i'm driving where it's going but there are a lot of talented people there to make it happen as well right and then i know that in the in the third game i know that evelyn fisher was was involved as well as the composition how did that work as far as you and her um writing songs together for donkey kong country 3 well evelyn fisher wrote um probably about 40 percent of the original dkc score um, as well, and, and Robin had written the track as well. So she was involved right from the word go, really. Um, so right. when, when it came to number three, it was it was really her game. I, I just wrote five of the tracks, I think, four or five of them. So number three was, was very much Evelyn's puppy, really. I heard that you handled the Game Boy Advance port of Donkey Kong Country 3. That, that's true, yes, absolutely. So did you write uh, new music for that game? Uh, I, I wrote new music for it on purpose. It was a bit of a rock and a hard place. We were, we were at the end of development with that game and we only had six weeks left to do it. Uh-huh. And the, it's, a, it's a bit hard, that sound chip. It's very hard to get the most out of it. Now, the original mm-hmm. Super NES works on a, uh, a TV screen. It's got a lot more bandwidth, sonic range. Whereas on the, the Game Boy Advance, you've got those, I think it's just one little speaker. Right. And very few samples work on that. And I couldn't adapt Evelyn's soundtrack quickly to make it work on the, on the Game Boy Advance. So uh, I made the executive decision that it would be easier to write a new score than it would be to try and adapt and recreate the original score. It would have taken far more than six weeks to do that with the that's so crazy so it, it seemed awesome. the, the only thing we, we could do in the time was to write a new score but adapt it and specifically write it for the that little speaker on the, the game boy advance because that game boy advance is such a quirky little piece of hardware because you have a mixture of some of those very very compressed samples but also that specific sort of uh, synth sound chip kind of sound it was it was it kind of did it almost feel like you were going back to your nes days working on that it was um almost but in some ways it was more compromised as well because the, there was so little if you if you worked on the snes and then you having to go almost backwards and try and recreate it with something that doesn't doesn't really work as well it was very, very challenging. So a lot of the bass notes aren't there and, and would never be. Edwin liked to use a lot of pedal notes to create atmosphere, which worked brilliantly on the SNES. Right. But there's no way we could do that on the on the Game Boy Advance. You couldn't build the sense of drama that, that you, you get with those long string bass notes. You know, the sense of anticipation wasn't there. And I found that the only way to suggest bass was to use piano sounds, which have got a lot of high-frequency content. Because uh-huh. bass sounds, they were just completely lost, really. So it was a it was different method of writing for that game, totally. And um, you know, um, 
I think when people reviewed it, they were sad that Evelyn's original music wasn't in there. Mm-hmm. But I I can't technically see how we'd have managed that and pulled it off in six it, weeks. Well, in six <laughs> weeks, well, we, even if we'd had a year, I think it would have been hard hard to recreate that and do it convincingly. So there was always well, and then and then they would have been disappointed that it doesn't sound exactly like the SNES. You know, it's hard to please. Absolutely, everyone. yeah. I was yeah. I was, I was coming on to that. So yeah, it was, it's a it was a balance. So. I think, given the time limitations we had, that was you know, that was definitely the best that we were going to the best solution at the time. One thing I find interesting is for the second game on the Super Nintendo, Donkey Kong Country Two, I believe that was solely composed by you. Is that right? That's right. Yes. There's probably a correlation between that fact and also that that's our favorite Donkey Kong Country <laughs> soundtrack. You're very kind. <laughs> One thing that is so great about that is the pirate influence that. It spreads to the entire musical score, the swashbuckling nature. The how, jib jig. Yeah, how early on was that established that this game was going to be pirate-themed and that that had to be in the music too? Um, again, uh, that comes down to a lot of Tim Stamper's influence. He, he loves boats, or he did at the time. And um, so having a nautical theme in huh. the game is, is, was quite important. Really, and it was driven by again a lot of the graphics, obviously, and the gameplay had that nautical theme in them. So we were just trying to do the same with the music and incorporate as much swashbuckling stuff as possible, which is always good fun. But again, it's a challenge as well. It's um, it can sound a bit corny, some sea shanty type thing. So it was it was trying <laughs> to find a balance of it being fun without sounding ridiculous. So uh, hopefully, we managed that. Oh, it was absolutely, it was exquisitely done. Also, something that I just absolutely love about that soundtrack is sort of the integration between sound effects and music in that in some of the tunes, you use sound effects as sort of percussive elements of the song. Like the mine, I remember one of the mining levels, there's this really metallic kind of industrial sound that when you first play the level, you think it's the background sound effect. It's actually part of the music. I thought that was really effective. Yeah, I think, again, that was another way of getting around some of the limitations of only having eight notes of polyphony that you have to share with sound effects. So if you can incorporate mm-hmm. some of the ambience into the into the music, then you can use that musically rather than having it taken away from your score. Right. So it, it, again, it was a solution to the limitation of the SNES rather than... Um, and again, it's a fun way of, of, of using instruments as well. If, you, if you've got like little birdie sounds in in key firing (laughs) off and being part of the rhythm that's that's a great way to use it and again with the mines having those um anvils and stuff cracking off in time and then you can build the rhythm with that then using that as the rhythm and the ambience you can concentrate your melodies uh, accordingly yeah it's just brilliant The, the last technical thing i wanted to ask you about the the donkey kong country games on the super nintendo is I feel like a lot of the tracks have like this lush reverb that's present on all of the samples. Was there a reverb setting that you could use on the Super Nintendo? I think there was reverb, but we didn't use it because it didn't sound very convincing. Instead, we used delay. I think there was a little delay thing on there, a very basic delay. Okay. But most of it was done by doubling or tripling up channels. Right, kind of like how you did on the NES. Yeah, so yeah, very much so. So the experience from there was adapted for the Super NES. So you might have a, and again, 
if you listen carefully to, to the soundtracks, we'd start off with perhaps a single instrument with lots of little delays on it, and we'd, we'd get a pattern going. Mm-hmm. And then when you bring in other instruments, the delays would disappear. But because people have got used to it, you don't notice that the, the bits that made it nice in singularity have disappeared. So you can bring in other elements. Mm. And, and that, was, that was used a lot. So yeah, I, I found that if you, you made a single instrument sound as good as possible and threw as much processing on it as you possibly could at the beginning, then when you had to mm-hmm. take away those elements by bringing in other instruments, on the whole, we didn't notice. That's so great. Now, we've talked so much about limitations and the challenges of working with that nowadays archaic technology. Was it fun for you to move on to something like the GameCube with Star Fox Adventures, where I would assume you'd have less limitations? Was that fun for you, or what, did it, was it still a challenge working on that system? Uh, I think that was... Uh, we've been working on the N64, which was... It sounded very nice. It had, some, it had a very good sound utility on there and it sounded nice and warm and very good when we moved to the gamecube we had to use i think it was a a system called factor five or something similar like that and um due to the way they wanted to do the game it meant most of it had to be done with midi and we only had 16 megs to share between the music and the sound effects and the the factor five didn't have any global parameters everything had to be done in singularity so if you're using multi samples you had to go through and change everything on every single multi sample throughout an instrument it was probably more work than the, the the n64 was and it really shouldn't have been that's so interesting it feels like that always follows you with no matter the rise in technology you always are facing those limitations that's so interesting certainly on the gamecube i found that very uh, we could have done it differently and perhaps in retrospect we 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 might have done that, but it was the decision was made that we were going to use MIDI. Uh, there are advantages to using MIDI because when we're doing some of the um, game integration, then you have control over that and you can give callbacks to the game to trigger animations and certain gameplay elements. So, yeah, it, it was a balance of what we could use, but I, f- I found the GameCube very challenging. It took a lot of time to get something to sound warm, really. I, th- I thought... Because on the game, we did Star Fox Adventures, and I much preferred, for me personally, the soundtrack on the N64. To me, it sounded just warmer to listen to Mm -hmm. and more pleasing. And whatever sound utility they were using on on, on the GameCube, it it was very compromising. That's very interesting. Yeah, we got there. I mean, fortunately for the cutscenes, we could use a more integrated score because that was being streamed. So we could um, create that using, well, I used Cubase at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's what did most of the cutscenes. But yeah, the, the actual in-game stuff was all done using MIDI. So nowadays when you're working on something for like the Wii U, is a lot of it primarily just recordings and that you're just putting WAV files or MP3 files? Or is it still um, is it still some of those limitations that you've worked with in the past? No, no, it's, it's moved on substantially since then. We can, we can use as many stems as we need, really. And I'm using a lot of virtual instruments from Native Instruments and Steinberg and various different sources. So there's a lot more freedom and uh, the ability to to have sounds that, that sound a little more convincing. Right. Uh, the the trick there is, or the technical challenges there, are, are recreating some of the things that we used to do to keep the timing of the animations and things in in sync with the game. But it's all all very very possible. 
So a lot of the restrictions have gone, which is, is very liberating. Absolutely. Well, one thing I'm curious about is being a video game composer, it's so fundamentally different than composing for any other medium because the technology aspect is so ever present. And as you move from one console to the next, you have advancements. And in a way, I must have imagined it would be challenging, even like how you mentioned for the GameCube, learning all these new systems for every console you get to. How have you sort of adapted to that over the years? And what's that like becoming accustomed to one sound chip and then moving on to another one and having to relearn that it's always been very much the um the path the course really you just know you're gonna have to do it so you get on and do it so there's no big hardship it's hmm. just in, in some ways it's exciting seeing what you can do hmm. with, with a, a new set of tools and a new sound system and exploring it to see what we can get out of it right so, yeah, I always found that that part of it very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your studio, Dave Wise Sound Studio, and some of the maybe the other facets of music that you were involved with after you left Rare in 2009? Uh, after I left Rare in 2009, I went to do some stuff. It was a Sony game. I think it was Buzz 2, so it was basically a quiz game. Okay. Uh, that's that's what I worked on it. I mean, I was mainly recreating or producing rather than writing. Well, I didn't write any original music for that game. Right. And also from from that point as well, as I say, my my personal life needed some attention before you know carry on and, and writing some more video game material. So now coming back into the video game world, is it like riding a bike again, or was it was it kind of hard coming back, or did it just feel so natural to come back to it? Um, you know, I suppose in in real terms, it wasn't that long. It wasn't really much of a break, really, because I was uh, doing bits and pieces in between anyway. So, right, yeah, there's there's no effective break really. Either. Yeah, right. It's so interesting with the rest of the world. We're like, oh, it's been so long since we've heard a Dave Wise composition, but that doesn't mean that you're not still active and working on a lot of different projects. It's just for someone to look at your Wikipedia page, they might see some gaps. Oh yeah, I mean, very much so. I think you have to remember that. Um, a lot of those gaps in the Wikipedia page, it doesn't mean I wasn't busy. I was desperately busy. Right. When we were working at Microsoft, we were working on many prototypes of games that never saw the light of day. So oh, I'd, I'd be busy right. working on Xbox titles. But uh, as it transpires, the, the games that we did, that we worked on, just never, never made it past the prototype stage. And some, some of those right. we might work on for over a year for them to go, you know what, that's not the kind of thing we're looking for. Uh, okay, next. I know Grant Grant Kirkhope talked about that in our interview with him. I remember he talked about the game Dream, how that originally got that you know got scrapped and eventually it kind of turned into Banjo-Kazooie. Did you ever have any involvement in Dream? Um, the Dream started life on the Super NES. Really? So after I'd worked on the DKC2... I went. I was working on Dream at that point, which is why I, my involvement with DKC3 was very limited. Okay. But then I branched off and did something else, and the the rest of the like, Grant obviously went on to work work on Banjo Kazooie, and that's what it morphed into, which was a totally different game from from what Dream had been anyway. Right. Now, when when Grant was hired, or when some of these new composers were hired, did anyone come to you for your opinion of, oh, listen to these demo tracks? What do you think of these composers? Do you have any involvement in the say of that? 
I think uh, uh, early on, Puck perhaps had some involvement in that, but I think those those kind of decisions are really left, really for either Tim and Chris, because obviously they were overseeing the company, or or the teams that we were working on, because it, it was their puppy, really. At Rare, I don't know whether Grant explained it, but we'd we'd have four or five different teams working on separate projects, so there wasn't much. There's a lot of competition between the teams, which obviously has its benefits. So the, the, mm-hmm. the, the chance to listen to what other people were doing during development at that time, that wasn't really an option. Interesting. Well, one thing I'm curious about, I've read that you play piano, uh, you play drums, and you're actually a saxophone player. Uh, when you approach writing video game music, how do you approach composition? Is it done on the piano? Or sometimes do you take influences from the other instruments that you play, and does that sort of seep its way into your video game compositions? I think the fact that I, I play piano, and I've got a big, well, a couple of MIDI controllers here, it, it makes it very easy having having a keyboard, and that's that's quite an easy way of starting off. But normally, I'd get an idea, perhaps thrash out a few. I'll sketch a few ideas first of all, mm-hmm. and then a lot a lot of it is done either riding the bike, walking around, um, doing something else, which is where most of the ideas get worked on. Right. So it's 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 very the initial ideas. I might have a few sketches, but the actual work of the the melodies and that kind of stuff it's probably more done whilst i'm out and about so it's more it's more cerebral rather than like sitting at a piano and plucking out notes true yeah absolutely i mean the, the time for sitting at the piano is when you've got your ideas fleshed out you know where you're going with them and let's let's work on them that's that's the time to do that that's so interesting yeah so very rarely will i um work on trying to get enough forcing an idea out on the piano because it never works <laughs> it just doesn't so out of all the consoles that you've worked on in your long career what was your personal favorite console and system to work on which led to the the best output in your opinion well i'd say the snes and and the wii u really both of those um, have been very good to work on i like like both of those but then you know I'm I'm happy to work on what anybody would like me to work on. So there's no um, <laughs> there's no real preference. It's just that they kind of worked out better with the you know that they both had good sound systems on them to work with. Right, that's great. You've worked on so many titles over the decades. What soundtrack are you personally the most proud of, and what holds the most special place in your heart out of all the music that you've done? Uh, I think, in all fairness, probably the, the DKC series, obviously, and um, right. Some of the NES soundtracks as well, they were based on perhaps more fuller scores, really. So things like Wizards, uh-huh. and, Wizards and Warriors, I quite like that one. Oh, Wizards and Warriors, yeah. Some of the early NES stuff? That's right, yeah, absolutely. So, um, And then there's a whole load, bunch of stuff that um, will probably never make the light of day, which I was quite proud of as well. So, But that's, again, <laughs> you know, that's the nature of the beast. Absolutely, yeah. So... Do you have any thoughts on the current state of modern video game music as far as the cultural respect that it now has and maybe some of the musical trends of contemporary composers? Yeah, I think that's, that's all part of the culture. I'm not sure years ago that there wasn't the respect there. I think, it, well, clearly it must have been there, otherwise it wouldn't have grown into the the phenomenon or the the, the cultural thing that it is now. So I think it was all, all always there. It's just grown. And um, I think as budgets have improved and people have access to 
orchestras and that kind of stuff, like video games live, then it, right. it, it, it can really promote it to the next level, really. And I think, you know, things like just mentioning videos, games live with Tommy Tallarico, he's really taken the genre and really elevated it into a much bigger level and brought a, a, a big spotlight to it. But as far as the music goes, I think it's always been important. It's just that um, people are more able to easily recognize that now. And that's all, right. that's all thanks to Video Games Live and many other people who, who've done that kind of thing. So uh, Thomas Boker, he's done quite a lot of stuff um, for the Nintendo scores as well, which has been, been interesting too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good to see it. Absolutely. Well, just to wrap things up here, what can we expect to hear from you in the future? Um, about to finish a soundtrack for some X-Ray colleagues, a game called Tengami, which you might have heard about. Cool. So that should hopefully be coming out next year for Apple. And I think that's probably also coming out on the Wii U as well. Oh, very cool. Well, we look forward to hearing much more Dave Wise soundtracks. Well, to wrap things up, Dave, I'd just like to thank you so much again for doing this interview with us. It's such an incredible, unreal honor for us to get to talk to you because we've been fans of your music ever since we were kids. We grew up with those games, and your music was really such an established part of our childhood. Uh, one last question I'd like to ask you, just on a personal note. Uh, we're both composers, we're both musicians, and we both aspire to be video game music composers. Uh, I was wondering, what advice would you share to any aspiring video game composers out there? You know, that's uh, I, I get that. I obviously get asked this question quite a lot, really. So I think, I mean, I think, I think a few of your other composers that you've interviewed have touched on it about the indie revolution that's going on now uh-huh. with game budgets getting ridiculously huge that the losses, if people don't have a good return on their investment, the company is going to fall. So the good thing now is there are lots of opportunities for doing scores for indie games. And I think that's really what's going to revitalize the game industry. I think for for everybody involved in writing music is to you know affiliate yourself with a small developer, try and get your your music with with those games. I mean, it's a bit there's no guarantee that whatever you're going to work on is is going to be a hit. But if you you know you're going to have to get out there, get your hands dirty, and get your music on as many games as possible. And you never know that the IP that you work on one day will. You know, it could be the next big thing, but unless you work on it, you're never going to know that. You've really got to. I've always found that a lot of the stuff that you thought you were doing for free mm-hmm. or for very little money, they can often be the ones that work out to pay you the most in retrospect. Because obviously, you know, if you're going to be a composer, you need to sustain your lifestyle, don't you? So, um, right. you know, at some point you do need to get paid to continue what you're doing. But a lot of it is just you've got to speculate to accumulate you've got to get out there and try ideas with different people chances are most of them aren't going to to work but if one of them does and it escalates into something a lot bigger than you ever thought it was going to be then that's got to that's got to be a good way of doing it and the good thing about indie developers is that there's a lot of opportunity to try that so for, for me I'd, I'd just try and you know rather than talking a lot of people, you know, they say, which musicians should you be talking to? Well, you shouldn't. You should be talking to games designers, graphic artists, those kind of people. You know, the people actually make the games. And, you know, you, you've got to mingle and 
network with those people and get your music onto their games, really. That's the way I'd go about it if I was starting off, because it's, it's, it's totally different from when I did. As I, right. you know, as I said earlier, I, w- I was lucky enough to be working in a music shop, and somebody needed a composer. <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's it's I, I don't know, it's one in a billion or something that kind of opportunity, isn't it? I was lucky enough to realise I got a good opportunity and willing to work hard enough to run with it and make something of it. That's so great. Well, thanks so much again. This has been such a blast for us. We just, yeah, we look forward to your future work and we wish you the best of luck, Dave. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. I can't wait to play Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. Uh, Excellent. Well, it, it should be good. Awesome. Well, take it easy, David. Okay, cheers. Thank you. Bye now. Awesome. Once again, I'd really just like to thank Mr. David Wise for coming on the show and taking the time out of his day to talk with us. We had an absolute blast. Yeah, that was so much fun. Just so rewarding for us. Uh, just having been fans of that music ever since we were kids and, you know, now being, you know, aspiring game composers ourselves to be able to talk in that much detail about those games and his whole career was an absolute treat. So, yeah, thanks, Dave, for talking to us. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And uh, quickly, we just wanted to mention David got back to us uh, the name of the computers those expensive American computers that he was talking about. If anyone's interested, those are made by Silicon Graphics, SGI. Just kind of a fun fact for you guys. Yeah, we're just, we're so glad to keep this going. We're going to play a couple more tracks here before we say goodbye to you guys today. Absolutely. Just because we sort of uh, really want to capture the entire career of Dave Wise. I mean, he's had such a longstanding and absolutely legendary uh, career in the video game industry. So we just want to take some time to talk about and really sort of appreciate just a few more of his classic video game tunes. Yeah. So what we're going to do now is we're going to play another track from the very first Donkey Kong Country game. And this is, in our opinion, probably one of the most famous and quintessential pieces. Now, again, if you guys have listened to our Donkey Kong episode which was not too long ago. We played some of the classics obviously. Here's a track that we didn't play in that episode. This is called Bonus Room Blitz, the bonus stage theme of this first game, of course composed by Dave Wise. Enjoy. Such a classic piece of video game music there, folks. That is Bonus Room Blitz from Donkey Kong Country, composed by David Wise. And such a great example of rhythm, melody, and all the textures coming together to create such an effective piece of music for that purpose. This is a bonus stage theme. I love the use of Latin. You have kind of those samba rhythms in the bass drum, the doom, 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 which really feels like something that would fit like a gorilla. There's like that underlying right. sense of rhythm that Will was talking about earlier. And you can hear that in this piece, but you're 
you're also getting the nice kind of island flavor with some of those metallic percussion and just a really catchy melody on that flute. Absolutely. There's really so much to love about this track. You know, I mean, obviously, I love all the percussive elements. I love the samples, too. The, um, the melody is so fine-tuned and well-crafted. Um, but, you know, those instrument choices are great. And I love the use of delay because whenever you hear yeah. this theme, it's always in a cave. And what's nice good is sort of the delay helps capture the feeling of the cave. But the music itself is such a um, it's a relief. You know, if the game mm -hmm. is very stressful and, you know, it's sort of intense platforming action. These bonus room areas are sort of a surprise because they're all secrets to find. And when you find them, it's sort of a nice little escape from the average gameplay. Yeah. So the music really helps to capture that emotion i whenever i hear this i have such a visual sense to what's happening because the music does such a characteristic job of these stages when i hear it and listen to those sound effects especially like those pitched monkey noises the oh 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 oh, oh, oh which oh, oh, oh. also was just so fun to hear right. that because you know think about the nes that wasn't possible so to hear that is so much fun but you're right it's so hard to separate this yeah. from the experience don't it's you just, just have those images of uh, like rambi and yeah. collecting bananas well <laughs> you're so right about this being an escape because even musically it's such an escape because a lot of the music of this whole series is is, is very serious and sometimes right. it can be a little tragic even i would say so What's nice is you have these bonus stages to remind you, hey, this is fun. This is a really fun, colorful video game. Right. Even at times, it can be very intense. Well, you know? it's nice. The music can sort of uh, change its tone depending on what the game is. It's something that makes mm -hmm. it feel fluid, and it really has sort of a, a heartbeat to it. You know, it's not static. It's not uh, retreading the same sort of emotional territories. It, it fluctuates depending on the context of the game. And I think one of the effective things, one thing that you need to remember is in 1995, 1994, 1995, this was a serious video game. There was nothing more serious. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think nowadays right. it's so easy when um, developers make a platformer. Oh, oh, it's a goofy, colorful platformer game. And right. if you want a serious game, that's Mass Effect. Well, I think right? the thing is, e but even not, if it's... But it's interesting because back then this was a serious video right. game. Right. Well, I mean, in, even if um, this game, it's obviously, I think still it wasn't taken as serious is something like Mass Effect in its visual tone. But I think of the course. thing is, um, whether or not that's the case, I think it's more about that maybe video games weren't as serious in um, direct sort of tone. Mm -hmm. All games were a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And right. I think the most important thing is that Rare has a self-awareness to it. The game isn't innately goofy. It's sort of goofy by design. It's almost sort of like parodying platformer so yeah. when the music is able to um really rise to the occasion and really have this sort of profound quality to it i think it really elevates the experience well now we're going to jump ahead in the future because we wanted to show a, a you know a different side of dave wise that maybe some people aren't as familiar with so we're going to move ahead to the gamecube now we, t we touched on this a little bit in our interview uh star fox adventures was a gamecube soundtrack that david wise composed he talked a little bit about his experience on the gamecube let's play a track uh this is a track called Dark Ice Mines Night from Star Fox Adventures composed by David Wise. This is a really nice, beautiful, soft piece of music. Enjoy.
so beautiful. You're listening to Dark Ice Mines Night Version from Star Fox Adventures, composed by David Wise. I think it's a brilliant use of the percussion. He's using the, a pitched percussion, a pitched hand percussion, uh, and it kind of feels like it's a bass, but it also is a drum, and it's just right. a really brilliant use of that instrument. Um, yeah, it's such a simple, pretty melody, and it's just kind of a nice, softer side of David Yeah, there's here. such an emotional quality to it, but I really love those rhythmic and percussive elements. Um, and in order to really talk about, I feel like, some of the context of this music, I sort of want to talk about a little of the story behind the development of this game. You know, this was originally not going to be a Star Fox game. I think its working title was called Dinosaur Planet. Right. And it actually did feature a fox-like character um as the protagonist and there were dinosaurs in this final game right. obviously and um the uh the idea to turn it into a Star Fox game which i think many people uh really criticized and I, I don't think it was as well acclaimed because of that that was mm-hmm. actually Miyamoto's idea so that's one of those ideas oh. that we don't hear a lot because he usually has such brilliant ideas but i think this was an example of uh the game being good but i think it was underappreciated because um i, I know even myself i'm guilty of this for what I was expecting from a Star Fox game, this was just so fundamentally different. It had right. more of an emphasis on platforming and adventure and RPG elements than it did with just straightaway combat. I wonder how this game would have been received if it was just an original IP. I wonder if it would have even sold well at all. And I think that's one of the struggles right. that these game developers have is is when you create a new IP, sometimes people aren't interested in it. You know, they want to see the classics. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily a bad idea uh, from me it makes sense i think it's interesting to listen to this music after talking with dave and hearing his some of the struggles he had with the gamecube i feel like it was a recurring theme wasn't it um throughout his his career is always having to struggle with limitations of the hardware it's interesting to think about that and how he overcame that with a piece like this also unique that the gamecube was really one of the ones that he mentioned as being uh Mm -hmm. the source of sort of the most struggles when we think of the gamecube as being relatively recent in the history of uh game consoles but i know nintendo's always just (laughs) trying to cut corners and whatever way they can to make their systems cheaper and i think also i don't know i really feel like there's a philosophy too there though is they really try to pose limitations on themselves to be the most creative as far as game design i think like those limitations are really what made them go for the art style in wind waker which so holds up i think they probably would have not chosen to go with that cell shaded look had they had um better hardware and i think that's just an example of the type of creativity nintendo puts on themselves by enforcing those own limitations that's a great point well we had such a great time today this is a really fun episode thanks so much for joining joining us guys my name is carl brueggemann and i'm will brueggemann thank you so much and once again i just like to thank dave wise for coming on our show and we really just had such a blast getting to talk to him absolutely stick with us next week for show and tell nine it's going to be a lot of fun some of our favorite episodes ever thanks so much guys take care